Welcome to episode 87 of the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. I am Jason Collette, joined once again by Eno Saris. What's up, Eno? Doing good, doing good. Yeah, I can say the same now that the uh, the lice issue is out of my house. So that It's my fault that we're delayed a couple of days, but uh, there's been a little rash of that going around my children's school. Uh, and my daughter was the victim of that. She had to come home, and I've had to deal with that mess, which includes a lot of laundry, a lot of combing hair, a lot of washing hair. So, And I used to be a teacher. For those who don't know, I used to be a public school teacher. I never had to deal with this myself. And my sons never got it, but damn it if my long-haired daughter didn't get it. So it was a bit of an issue, but that's why we were delayed, and my apologies for that. Damn lice. Yes. All right. Uh this week we're going to talk, or this week, this show, we're going to talk about the Braves and the Brewers. A couple of you all sent in uh, some questions about those two teams on the last podcast post. So we're going to talk about some of those players. If you did not do that and you want to take advantage of that next time around, I believe the next two teams we're going to discuss, if I'm not messing up alphabetical order, will be the Cardinals and the Cubs. Um, let's see. I can do that really quickly this time. We did Braves, Cardinals, and Cubs. You Woo-hoo! got it right. All right. Yay. Cardinals and you Cubs. You got a gold star today. There you go. So if you have any questions about Cardinals and Cubs, please make sure you post those questions to the comments area of the post for this podcast, and we'll be happy to tackle those. Also, thanks for your support in checking iTunes. This podcast is already up in the top 30 for professional podcasts, which isn't bad considering it was dormant for a little bit, but it's already back up there in top 30. So thanks for your support. If you have not yet rated this show on iTunes, please go do so. Apparently that helps out move you up the chart. So if you haven't rated this podcast uh, and, or if you haven't rated it since we had some change in personnel, get in there and do that. And we thank you in advance. If you hate us, don't rate us, but uh, otherwise we love it. I mean, but if you hate us, why are you listening? Exactly. It's kind of like people that say, I hate sports radio. Then why do you listen to it? (laughs) With that, let's get into the Braves and the burning question with the Atlanta Braves this year. Pick an Upton brother. Is BJ Upton going to be better than the hot mess he was in 2013? Will Justin Upton realize that the season's more than just April? Uh, Let's start with BJ because... He was arguably the worst fantasy disappointment in the in the hobby of the industry in maybe the last five years last year. Your thoughts on BJ Upton? Yeah, that must have uh, that must have been tough for the Braves too, because it's one of their biggest fantasy, uh, their biggest uh, signings, uh, free agent signings like ever. Um, so that that uh, I feel bad for them on that one. You know, this is one of Podhorzer's favorite, um, you know, late round picks, just because. He was a 20-30 guy for three seasons in a row before that. Um, the one thing that is that worries me, uh, and I hate to get too one-dimensional in my uh, analysis and, and the things that I worry about, but I worry about strikeouts. And I know that the whole league strikes out, and so that means that strikeouts aren't as, as worrisome as they used to be. But it's so nice to get a guy who doesn't strike out a lot. They're so much like more likely to have a good batting average, so much more likely to hold on to their, their starting role. 
So I, I, you know, I just don't like the fact that his strikeout rate has gotten worse three seasons in a row. It's almost, it was untenable last year. It's basically, it's the, it, at 34%, it's, that's when you lose your job. Um, of course, it can regress a little bit back to the sort of 25%, 26% rate, and he could have a, a decent season. But, you know, the projections have him at 220, 210. Uh, I wouldn't even I wouldn't push that past 230. So no matter what happens, he's not going to have much better than a 230, 240 batting average. And I think even 240 these days is pushing it. Yep. When I when I talk to people at BJ Upton, the one thing that really comes up is a lot of people say slider speed. That's his. That's how they describe his bat speed. Good fastballs are giving him more and more problems. As somebody who watched just about every at bat of his up through the 2012 season, you could see that good velocity can get B.J. Upton out. Last year, you didn't even need good velocity to get him out. One of the things that has always been an issue with him is you elevate the fastball, you can get above his swing plane, and and that's a problem for him. What really concerns me is his drop in zone contact. You look at his zone contact, and those numbers are not good. Uh, it really is painful to look at. And when you start making, we know from the work you know, that, that Bill Petty's done that we know that guys decline on their out-of-zone contact as they get older. Well, Upton's there already, and now he's having problems inside the zone. And usually the only way you get better there is to sacrifice power. And the last thing we want B.J. Upton doing is sacrificing power. Last year went from 28 to 9 home runs and didn't get didn't gain any more contact. So, uh, this is tough. This is really tough. Uh, nine home runs, 12 steals, and he was almost a 30-30 guy heading into free agency and then blew it. Sometimes we see these free agents bounce back in year two after getting year one out of the way. We, we expect that from Pujols, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago. I expect some bounce back from Upton. I just don't know if he's able to steal 20 bases or hit 20 home runs again. Yeah, and yeah, I think you might know this. I, I've seen... I thought, <laughs> I've seen so many breakdowns of his swing. I've, I think I've read more breakdowns of any person's swing than, uh, you know, I don't think I've read any more than, than, than BJ Upton's. I mean, it's just like, you know, oh, the toe tap went away, the toe tap came back, the, the load is here, the load is there. And every, and he, I think he, he would admit that he tinkers with it a lot. Oh. Um, <laughs> he is, a, he is a, a tinker toy. I mean, he's as skinny as one, but that is, he is constantly, if something's working, He'll stick with it, and as soon as it breaks down, he tries something else. Uh, and to talk about his zone contact rating, 84% in 2009 was 72% last year. So that's a pretty large drop. I remember being down in the field in 2012 before a game, and we were just standing around, and, and Andrew Freeman happened to come by to say hey uh, to the media. I just happened to chit-chat and watching Upton, and he was like, really, for BJ, it's about his hands. If his hands are good, his swing is good. So that's really what you have to watch. Forget the toe tap. Forget the increased, the wider stance or, you know, holding his hands up higher because you can watch BJ Upton in April, May, and June and see three different guys at the plate. It's really, if his hands are quick, he's able to hit the baseball. And just talking with a couple of guys last year that follow the Braves and cover them, those hands just weren't there except for the, you know, that one magical night where he and, he and Justin Upton hit those home runs in the ninth inning. That was pretty much BJ Upton's highlight for the year. <laughs> well, uh, you know, one thing that might, uh, you know, might be in his favor is that uh, I don't know when exactly I'm trying to look this up. When exactly Terry Pendleton, um, he was the hitting coach and through the 2010 season. So it wasn't him anymore. 
but it, I, I just had this flash of like Terry Pendleton coaching BJ Upton, and I I was shivered because uh, Terry Pendleton was the original tinkerer. I mean, dude had a, like about 15 different batting stances during the season. So uh, I think that you know maybe maybe he'll find something good and just you know it'd be nice for him to stick through a cold patch with with decent mechanics instead of tinkering too much. But you know it's always about price. If he's a dollar guy, I think that he's got uh, he's got more of a hold on a, on the role than most dollar guys. He's got more upside than most dollar guys. So if he's a true dollar guy, you've got my interest. Um, and it's really hard it's hard to find true dollar guys anyway. I mean, the minute you start talking about oh this guy would be a good dollar guy, his price goes up to three or four dollars. So um, you know, once we start talking about four, five, six dollars, I'm sure that I can find somebody better out there. Yeah, and and looking at I've mentioned last episode the the industry mock draft that I'm in, and we are at pick one six at one seventeen, and BJ Upton is yet to be drafted. Last night out in Vegas at the Fantasy Sports Trade Association uh, convention, BJ Upton was taken in the seventeenth round. He was taken after the likes of Will Venable at his position, and, and that seems kind of absurd thinking of coming into last year. But I I think I'd take Venable over Upton right now as well. But that's where Upton's being drafted. He went. He went from a guy that was, you know, that was being taken in the top five rounds to now being a late teen rounds. That's that's crazy. 16, uh, 16th round, two hundred eighteen uh, in mine, and um, and uh, nineteen picks after Will Venable. So, yeah, uh, I think that's a decent place actually to take a shot on him. Um, I got, but. You know, I I picked two after BJ Upton got Anthony Rendon, and honestly, I'd be I was happier about that pick than I would have been about picking BJ Upton at that point. Yeah, Upton's not a guy. I'm all for I'm all for drafting guys coming off bad years because they can only get better. At the same time, there's just too much personal bias there for me to want to get back in there and try him out again. I did not take him last year. I know a lot of guys that got torched by him. Uh, you know, Jeff Erickson from Rotowire is a guy that spent some good money on him uh, and got burned on it. So. I'm I'm concerned about him. I'm I'm more optimistic about Justin Upton making a comeback, uh, being more consistent this year than I am BJ Upton making a comeback to fantasy relevance and ending the season as a top 100 player. Yeah, one nice thing about Justin Upton is his age. Um, you can't forget that. Even though you know, if you look at his um, at his career, it's tempting to start to like uh, sort of put the framework of a peak season and a, and a sort of, uh, and now like a denouement coming off of that peak season, it's easy to look at 2011. We went 30, 20 with a 289 average and say, Oh, that's peak. And so he's post peak. And so it's not really going to ever get much better. I don't, I don't think, I think he's more complicated than that. You've seen sort of large swings in his career, um, large swings in strikeout rate, large swings in walk rate, large swings in power. So I think he's the kind of guy that does have a little bit of variability from year to year. But it's nice to know that he's only going to turn 27 late this year. Mm-hmm. So he's 26. Uh, by you know, As much as it looks like things are peaking earlier in terms of aging curves, 26 is still, you know, when I did an ISO aging curve, 26 was still uh, in the peak range. Um, I and, believe Tony had a piece this morning on on ISO aging curves. I uh, when things started to drop off, and I believe twenty six was still at the uh, near the peak. Yeah, so I think he's still near the peak. And if you're worried about strikeout rate, that's a decent point. Um, he does strike out a, a fair amount. 
he doesn't for his career he doesn't have bj type strikeout rates yet and it was just in 2012 when he had a, a better than average strikeout rate for the for for um the league so i you know most of the projection projection systems have him you know striking out better next year mm-hmm. i would i would say that i'm comfortable with that um i'm comfortable with taking the over on on his uh, steamer projection of 276 with 23 homers, so am uh, I. I think that he can hit more. He can hit more out than that. I don't. I do think that stolen bases peak really early, um, and we did a, a stolen base aging curve that suggested that stolen base numbers and not just speed, but stolen base numbers tend to drop off. I think that's a lot has to do with a lot with like, okay, Justin, you're our power hitter now. We don't want you breaking a finger at second base. So, um, you know, don't don't take too many chances. Um, and uh, so I don't think that he's necessarily going to steal more than 10 this year. Uh, but uh, hit more than 23, I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable saying he will. Yeah, wait, here's what concerns me. You look at last year, obviously April stands out. In the month of April, hit 298, OPS of 1136, hit 12 of his 27 home runs in April. And then went on to hit 256 with a 753 OPS the rest of the season, despite striking out fewer times. When you look at what when you look at his numbers, he was more impatient at the plate because his swing rate was higher. Yet his whiff rate was the same. It, he just he was just swinging at more pitches. So I guess losing that losing that selectivity, he was swinging at more pitches and just not doing much more with them. And looking at his heat maps where he was being pitched. They just stayed away from him. They stopped throwing him inside because when he was pitching him inside, that's when he was hitting the ball well. So they finally said, you know what? Let's try to you know, we'll work you inside a little bit, uh, keep you off balance. But they really – and he stopped hitting fly balls. When you look at that first half, he was so fly ball heavy. And that, in that, not the first half, in the month of April, 46% fly ball rate. Then he went down to 37%. And that was really the only change. So there wasn't you know more strikeouts – uh, and just became, I'm sorry, fewer strikeouts and just became a little more impatient at the plate. This is this is why I have a lot more faith in Justin becoming that fantasy stud again than I do BJ rebounding. And with, and with Upton, as you said, with Justin rather, the stolen bases should, I think, will still be there. It's kind of strange to kind of see how things tapered off with him. But, you know, if they go from 28-18 to 8. Freddie Gonzalez is not a very uh, – he's not Jim Leland with the running game, but Justin Upton should be stealing more than eight bags. Yeah, and, well, you know, another reason I actually uh, am happy uh, to hear what you were saying is, you know, I think that – I think he can adjust. He may not be the quickest adjuster, um, just judging from his uh, the sort of variations in his <clears throat> in his career. You can see that sometimes maybe it takes a while. Mm-hmm. He has kind of longer streaks than some people. Um, but the fact that you're saying that they were throwing him away um, a lot, I look at his uh, pull center oppo numbers, uh, I'm looking at it right now, and he's actually below average uh, for pulling and above average for going oppo. So uh, that may affect his power a little bit, and that's maybe why he didn't. Maybe he pulled a little bit at the beginning of the season, they started throwing him away, and that's why his power went down a little bit. But that should be a good sign for his uh, strikeout rate, you know, because he'll make more contact have a better batting average, go the other way, you know, maybe that's how he ends up only hitting 23, 24 homers because they're pitching him away. He has to hit it away, and then they start going inside, then he pulls it for homers. That's why I'm not too concerned about the one-month thing is because this is a game of adjustments back and forth, and I'm happy to see that, 
you know, when you look at the season as a total, it looks like he did adjust to them pitching him away. And if they do start going back inside a little bit to, to make him uh, off balance, he can, he can definitely jack those. So, um, you know, the shape of his production, I think, uh, may look a little bit worrisome in terms of, oh, it all came in one month. But I, I like when you look at the, 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 the sum of it, it looks pretty nice. Agreed on all on all points. Uh, let's move over to Chris Johnson and Freddie Freeman with them. And the first thing that Chris Johnson stands out, if people – this is a, one of the things that drives me nuts about fantasy analysis. You look at Chris Johnson's final slash line, 321, 358, 457. A lot of people are going to slide their finger over and say, ah, 394 bad bip. He's going to regress. If I were to tell you that Chris Johnson's bad bip over the last four seasons is 364 – how much would you be willing to say his BABIP's going to slide in 2014? Yeah, I mean, you always got to look at career. And, you know, this actually goes right in line with um, an effort that we're, we're doing right now at Rotographs of Zimmerman, uh, to some extent Max Weinstein from the, the front of the page, uh, Podhortzer. We're all trying to develop uh, an ex-BABIP for hitters that we feel comfortable putting on a website. And the problem, you know, people have been asking for it forever. The problem mm-hmm. with the ex-Babbitt numbers to date, is that none of them beat last year's Babbitt um, right. in terms of predict- predictability. So um, that's been kind of the test that's been put forth uh, put in front of us by Appleman in, in terms of getting the, this uh, stat on the site. And one of the inputs that we're putting in um, is this pull percentage. And a part of that is because uh, big pull hitters, pull hitters get uh, shifted. And so you saw with Matt Adams... Mm-hmm. Early in the season, he was pulling a ton, and his Babbitt was sky high. But then they started shifting, and his Babbitt dropped 100 points, and his batting average dropped with it. So, um, you know, it's a proxy for 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 shifting, and because we don't, we can't really, you know, get so granular with every with every hitter with X Babbitt. So we're trying to put pull percentage in. We're trying to look at percentages of different uh, batted ball types, and 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 trying to really get at X Babbitt this off season. One of the things that Chris Johnson does really well. Is he he is the jo- Joey Votto type, you know? He he, uh, and it was just kind of amazing to say because uh, he doesn't have the walks of a Joey Votto. He's probably not half as cerebral as Joey Votto, but he has power and he hits to all fields. So yes. that's the kind of thing that's hard to de- to uh, defend. And he has given up probably some homer uh, power for this because he, when you go to the opposite field, it's a little bit harder to hit it out to the opposite field. So that's why you get a guy who's going to hit. 280, 290 with 15 homers because he's chosen to be that guy as opposed to the pull hitting, you know, 250 hitter with 25 homers or something. Hey, so when I look at his data, Chris Johnson loves the inner half of the plate. He is disciplined enough, like Votto, if the ball's on the outer, if somebody's trying to work the outside edge, he's not going to swing at that pitch. He'll take a pitch, he'll take a baseball that's on the last inch of the, of the white, maybe towards there, towards the black, and hit it the other way. Uh, most of his home runs are pull variety, but he does use all fields for hits. But you look at his heat map, he loves pitches middle in, like like a lot of righties, like they do. It just that's it. That's his sweet spot. But he is disciplined enough not to expand his zone out. He may chase stuff in. He may chase stuff down. Maybe even up. But on the outside, where a lot of, especially when you're a right-handed pitcher, and you want that guy to chase that breaking ball out there. He's not going out there, and that's why uh, he's a guy that I would like to target in the draft. Because no, I don't expect his bad bit to be over 390 again. But it's been 387, 354, and 394 in three of the past four seasons. So he could easily put up a 360, and while it would be a 30 a 34 point drop. 
it's still going to be one of the best ones in the league. He he's a good hitter, and that you know there's value there. Yeah, the funny thing about it is, um, is that you look at Freddie Freeman, and he has he has a lot of the same uh, traits in terms of uh, uh, being a disciplined hitter uh, with power to all fields, and and so therefore earning his his high BABIP maybe. Uh, but when you look at Chris Johnson, you don't have that walk rate that Freddie Freeman has, and you kind of have in some years a bad strikeout rate. Mm-hmm. So you you kind of when you look across that line, I can I I forgive anybody who who thinks of him as a bad hitter, and I I thought of him as a throwing in the trade, and uh, you know he is a little bit worse in real life because his defense at third is not great, um, and yes. doesn't give you any walks, and you know so. It's easy to get biased against this type of player, especially if you read fan graphs for your regular baseball analysis and you see, okay, he's not that helpful. You know, he's only somewhere between below and, and average, you know, because of his other flaws. But in terms of fantasy baseball, I mean, we don't really care how the sausage is made, you know? Exactly. You, you play with batting average, he's going to have a decent batting average, you know, in every year but one. I think uh, it speaks to I think it speaks to his ability to make hard contact because as you said, walk rate's low. It's like five percent for his career. Strikeout rate so he's putting a lot of baseballs in play and he's still able to post that kind of bad bit. I'd like, you know, after the show, I'd like to sit down and look at okay, let's find hitters with at least a three fifty bad bit over the last four seasons and let's see you know, let's see what their walk rates are and, I, and their strikeout rates. I bet you he's one of the extreme guys that's just able to make hard contact and put things through. Because one of the things, as you said, because he uses all fields, he can't be shifted like the other guys. You know, if you look at Alex Rodriguez, he's somebody that the AL East would put three guys to the left side of the infield because A-Rod never hit the ball the other way that way. So if you Mark don't get, if you don't, yeah, if you don't get shifted, it plays in your favor. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, hopefully we ahead. can find Sorry. something on that. But uh, you know, and just don't forget the 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 ugly looking guys at your draft days is kind of the Chris Johnson rule, I guess. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people will say, "Oh, let me just go for walk rates. Let's go for walk rates," and uh, he doesn't have one, and it's okay. When I look at Chris Johnson, all right, here's here's how the industry views him. Chris Johnson was not drafted in the FSTA draft last night. Kelly Johnson was. Jim Johnson was. Josh Johnson was, Chris Johnson was not. And this is a 15-team, 30-round league. Why is Chris Johnson not being, or 29-round draft? Why is Chris Johnson not being drafted in this kind of format? That is that is really actually sort of crazy. And let me, I, I need to look up my my mock now. Because it's not like um, the the Braves have a hotshot third-base prospect coming up. Uh, they got Terdoslovich, but he's not even really a third baseman, and he's definitely not a hotshot. Um, so there's not, there's not something, oh, oh, that's actually kind of funny. Uh, Chris Johnson went right after Kelly Johnson. Uh, Paul Sporer took Kelly Johnson in the 21st round, 286. And Nick Minix took Chris Johnson in the 21st round, 287. So, uh, that's still not a lot of respect. I mean, uh, let's see some third baseman who went ahead of him, um, uh, let's see here. Todd Frazier, I guess he deserves. I mean, Todd Frazier has power, but you need batting average. Nick Castellanos went ahead of him, went like, you know, 50 spots ahead of him. Nick Castellanos hasn't, you know, hasn't done anything. And, and, and for all the talk of Nick Castellanos having a great hit tool, he didn't have great batting averages in the minor league. So, you know, I'd rather take Chris Johnson, who has the plus hit tool. We know it. 
Yeah, the shiny new toy syndrome is definitely in play there. I, I see to me, there's value, and there's even more reason to go out and, and try to get him because if he's going undrafted in that, and his ADP right now, if I'm looking at the NFBC data, is 250, 258. He's going behind Matt Dominguez, Nick Castellanos, Will Middlebrooks, Todd Frazier. I would take Johnson over all of those guys. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I have uh, Cody Ashey uh, at third in my dynasty league. I just made a trade before uh, the, the show today. And I think uh, I think I might need I – could, I could use Johnson as a, as a backup plan. I might look into this. So that's something to just something to keep in mind if you do or you're doing your own drafts and you let us know where Chris Johnson's being taken in yours because that's almost uh, you know Rotograph's article worthy to see what the issue is how he's going undrafted in expert league you know how is a guy like D why is D Gordon being taken in a draft over Chris Johnson Lucas Duda was taken in the 29th round in this one I'm looking at Javier Baez you know some of these rookie plays or are, are Hector Santiago pitcher and it doesn't really play uh garrett jones i mean i don't know i don't get it don't get it uh so that's chris johnson let's shift over and uh, let's look on the mount oh actually no we do need to address freddie freeman freddie freeman a lot of people are going to dismiss uh, he had a 371 babbit last year was 295 the season before and was 339 those are his babbits over his his first three full seasons in the major leagues Your, your thoughts on freeman well, we were we were talking about him, uh, about about him and about Babbitt. So I, I feel I feel pretty comfortable saying that you know he deserves that high Babbitt uh, to some extent. Um, the only thing that I have that about him that's negative um, is that I don't think there's much of a power ceiling left. I don't think there's much power projection left. I think he is who he is, and um, I don't think he may hit 30 one year, and maybe that's going to be this year. But I would never project him into 30 home runs, and um, so. You know, to this guy, he went in the second round, 25th um, pick in my industry. It's for a guy that's not going to steal bases and not hit home runs, and even with a high Babbitt, might might hit 280. Uh, it's it's not a terrible pick, but it's it's not. I don't think it's a game. I don't think it's a winner. I don't think it's like a. I don't think it's a. I don't think there's a lot of projection left. I think he'll hit near his, his projected auction values and his near projected spots. And so that there, there is value and stability. But I don't think there's a lot of projection beyond that is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, my, my comment on Freeman applies the same kind of thing with Chris Johnson. People are going to say 371 BABIP was fueled by a 27% line drive rate. Freddie Freeman had a 26% line drive rate the season before. So that speaks to your issue. You don't think there's much power. You don't think there's 30 home runs in that swing. I agree because... There's a lot of line drive in a swing, and that's not a bad thing for a baseball player. For a fantasy baseball player, it's a little different because you want power from first base. But don't let people, if you read analysis that delegitimizes what Freeman did last year based on line drive rate, throw it in the garbage can because we're talking two seasons of 26-plus line drive rate. And then even as a career, he has a 25.1% line drive rate. This guy can hit. Yeah, I mean – what the the real outlier uh, in his in his batting line might be the 295 Babbitt that he had in 2012 because he had a 295 Babbitt even though he had a 26 percent line drive rate you'd expect much better out of your batting average and balls in play in that situation so um, you know some people might want to regress that back to 295 they should really uh, see that as the outlier yes uh, and you're looking at his he was a third round pick he went three six. 
in the our, in the FSTA draft last night. Uh, Justin Upton went two picks earlier, so that's where Freddie Freeman's being uh, viewed by the industry experts along that line. Let's shift to the mound and look at pitching, and in, in particular, we know what we know what we like in Chris Medlin. We everybody was impressed with what Mike Miner did last year, what Julio Tehran did last year, but the four and five situation. We've got Brandon Beachy and we have Alex Wood. Speak to where you view both of those guys before I do. Uh, well, you know, Podhortzer and I always disagreed about Brandon Beachy. Um, and I see his point to some extent. Uh, you know, he, he does a, he's a lot more, um, I think I look a little bit more at pitch peripherals and, and Podhortzer looks a little bit more big picture when it comes to pitchers. So Podhortzer would say things like, you know, oh, you know, average whiff rate, 90-mile-an-hour fastball, average control, below-average ground balls, what's to really like? Um, but when I drill down and look at Brandon Beachy's pitch types, what I see uh, is an above-average changeup, an above-average slider, and a curveball that gets him a lot of ground balls. Um, so, you know, if, if, he, if he needs to keep the four-seamer down to get the homer rate better on that, um, that's fine. If he needs to improve the sinker, maybe that's that's something he can do. But I see whiffs. I see whiffs in his arsenal, um, and uh, I think that he he's the, the kind of guy that could really go into this Tommy John rule where control and velocity come back. You know, the second year that you come back, you know, the second year that you're you're, you're pitching in the league after Tommy John. So. Um, I will, I'm going to take the over, or the, I'm going to take better numbers than Steamer has projected for him, and say he's going to have an ERA in the threes, uh, a good WHIP, and uh, you know seven to eight strikeouts per nine. Yeah, my the only thing I can't overlook is the health history there. There's some issues there. I, I liked him. I know a lot of people were looking at him as a sleeper last year to try to jump on him when he came back, and and his return just took a lot longer than people expected. I do like what I've seen from him. I know, if, you know, for a time he was a. Did he do so? He did some work in the pen. They finally said, "Okay, look, we're going to go ahead and give you some, give you a starting role, and, and let's see what you can do uh, along those lines." But I agree, the changeup. If you look at his whiff rates on that pitch against league average, he's in the top third with that pitch, so it's something that he's able to do. He does have some splits. He's better against lefties with than righties, and that's what you would expect from a guy with a kind of changeup like that. But when I look at him and say, okay, what am I going to get from him at a season? I'm comfortable saying that, you know, I, I'm comfortable saying he'll make 20, you know, 24 starts, maybe pitch 150 innings. Outside of that, I, I'm going to say it's gravy because we just haven't seen, even in his, in his biggest year, 25 starts, 142 innings. Yeah, I, I that it. And it was it's it's a health issue that's gone beyond just you know the Tommy John because there were some issues getting him enough innings in the minor leagues and stuff. So I I know that he's not the healthiest guy, and I think that affected his prospect status actually too because he's kind of an out of nowhere guy a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I don't think he'll cost much this year. I I think that people I think he really got he soured also because when he came back he wasn't that great in the games he did pitch. Uh, but I really think a lot of that was command. I saw some of those games. Um, I looked at the heat maps, and he was high with his pitches, and uh, he wasn't locating his secondary stuff very well. But he has a history of plus uh, walk rates, you know. So I know that you know, command does not equal control, uh, or control does not equal command. But I, I tend to believe that this is a sort of a remnant of Tommy John, 
and that we'll see better command out of him this year and uh, and a better season. Agreed. Uh, conversely, Alex Wood <clears throat> obviously offers some more upside. Uh, you know, Podhorzer actually wrote an article about him over at Rotographs uh, at the end of the at the end of the county or back into um, on New Year's Eve about him. It was, it was a good piece about him. But you look at what Alex Wood brings to the table. One of the things that stands out is just how good he is against left-handed batters. You know, he threw 410 pitches to them, not one home run. Only three extra base hits, struck out 29% of the lefties he faced. That was impressive. And he doesn't even really have, he strikes out fewer right-handed batters, but you look at his overall numbers and there's not a big split there. I mean, this kid, the delivery's funky, but there's some pretty tantalizing upside here. Do you, do you agree with me? Oh, yeah, for sure. But I would go a little bit further than funky. Uh, the way I described his 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 delivery was a toddler melting down on the mound. I mean, <laughs> he, he reaches back. There's elbows everywhere. And it's not like Chris Sale elbows. I mean, these are just elbows pointing in every different direction. Uh, and then he just falls apart when he throws through. So it's just a crazy it's, – it's worth watching, actually. It's a fun – it's fun to watch because it's just like, that's not going to work. His delivery looks like the bastard love child of Madison Bumgarner and Chris Sale's delivery, making a child. <laughs> In a bad way. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you talk about bird rate, and this, you know, Beachy had his issues and he got hurt. Nobody really loved Beachy's delivery either. But you, yeah. you do look at, Wood definitely shows that ball. And then, like you said, he falls apart like a transformer when he comes towards a plate. But for a guy with that arm angle, he shows a pretty good changeup. For a guy, yeah. it's, it's tough to, to show a changeup with that kind of fade from the arm angle he uses, but it works. Yeah, and I think the I think what I would just say is you know uh, don't trust, but but buy in. You know, invest, but don't don't invest heavily. He's like one of those if you're in your in your stock profile, he's one of those volatile stocks that you you want to have a, a toe in, but you don't want to you don't want to make a core or acquisition there, and you don't want to like you know, hold on to him. I think in a dynasty league, if he had a great year this year and he was a bonus for you and you had other, other good pitching, he's like the the perfect guy to, to, to send off for a ransom of some sort. So, um, I, I would enjoy him while you could, uh, you know, the only other thing I can say other than the changeup is great. The curve is, is, is okay. It gets a lot of grounders. Um, and so he, he's probably two different pitchers in a way. He's probably, more of a curveball pitcher against right-handers, and uh, and more of a you know, curveball and ground ball pitcher against right-handers, and more of a, um, yeah, he throws the curve twice as much as the change against left-handers. So um, I think that, uh, uh, yeah, and the changeup. So you're saying that he's he, he kills lefties with a change, huh? Yeah, you, when you look at the numbers, the the splits that he had in play there, the thirty percent strikeout rate and everything, it's just. That's pretty phenomenal for, compared to his strikeout rate. It's like 21% against against righties, but it's higher against lefties. The arm angle definitely comes into play there. But if I'm looking at looking at his changeup, a changeup just against what he's able to throw it, let me just split it up here looking at the numbers. No, yeah, he, has, he has a 27% whiff rate yeah. against lefties with the changeup, so you're right yeah, about he, that. He threw 47 of them, but that's still a lot because one of the things – that we don't see a lot. We don't see a lot of pitchers, particularly young pitchers, willing to throw changeups to same-handed hitters. And Wood showed that. I mean, he threw 47 of them last year, which is a lot more than uh, some of the other young guys, uh, fireballers that are willing to throw. And he only gave up one hit off the pitch. So that's one of the things he shows a willingness to use it. So I am um, intrigued by his upside. But if you're worried about, I mean, one of the reasons I brought up his curve was because if you're worried about, um, you know, him being sort of a, a, a 
uh, having platoon problems. The curve is a good enough pitch, uh, and especially against right-handers, it has average whiffs against right-handers, and it gets uh, 50% ground balls, basically. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good enough pitch that I don't think he's really going to have um, uh, platoon problems. So the only really problem for me with him is, uh, is the delivery, and that might affect his control, too. Uh, but it, he actually, I think he repeats it well. It just looks crazy. Yes. Uh, what it, Something else that looks crazy is where he's being drafted. In the FSTA draft I've mentioned, Alex Wood was the first pick of the 18th round. He went ahead of guys like Jared, the next pitchers that went, starting pitchers, Jared Parker, Justin Masterson, Marco Estrada, Dan Heron, Bartolo Colon, John Lackey. I would put Wood, I'm fine with taking... I'll take Masterson, Estrada, and Heron at a minimum, and even Lackey. So I would take the only pitcher that I would take Wood in front of would be Cologne, because eventually that fat stuff's got to blow up. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I'm a little, I'm a little worried that there might be some helium in Wood, and it might, uh, he might get uh, too pumped up at some point, just because, um, you know, they did sign. Um, uh, I can't remember his name now, though, the former White Sox, Gavin Floyd. Gavin Floyd, yeah. Uh, and they, they've been rumored to be uh, in on Samarja. And so there's there's some some stuff going on there where they maybe don't feel super comfortable with him as their five and rather have them as their six. Um, you know, and right now, in my industry, he got taken ahead of Hiroki Kuroda. Wow. I mean, Kuroda's, it doesn't have much upside, but he he's got a role. Um, and there's some there's some uh, worry about Alex Wood's role, I'd say. But uh, as long as I mean, he it was still in the 17th round. It was, I think it's probably just too low for Hiroki Kuroda. It was probably just about right for Alex Wood. So if you're talking 13th, 14th, that's getting a little bit higher. If you're talking 15th, 16th, 17th round, yes, go go go. Um, concerns that the craptastic duel of Evan Gaddis and Ryan Domit behind the plate are going to affect any of the Atlanta pitching. It's even worse than than you say because I looked up uh, Gerald Laird's uh, because I think Domit is a little bit more slated for uh, uh, the sort of Evan Gaddis role last year, um, outfield, first base, pinch hitting, some catching. I think that the actual catching duo is probably Gaddis and Laird, uh, but the problem is that Laird also uh, fares badly by framing. He's below average, mm-hmm. so. Uh, so it's all three of them. And um, the good news is that the pitchers that they have, um, it, it actually, it's, it's, it's a, this is interesting because McCann was a good framer. Uh, yes, he was. So it, would, it would suck if the pitchers that they had, that the, their walk rates were, you know, a lot of McCann, and then all of a sudden all of them blow up. But I, I would say that, the pitchers uh, that the Braves have have innate good command or, or have their own good command to bring to the table. So maybe you'll see some regression in their walk rates. You probably would have seen that anyway because, uh, you know, you look up and down this Braves lineup, they, they have great walk rates um, in, in terms of the, the, the starting rotation. So uh, maybe they'll all regress a little bit. But um, I don't think that we know the full impact of framing just yet in terms of, you know, I know Harry Pavlis is working on this. They've tried to, we, we haven't yet, for example, taken out the pitcher out of framing um, so much. So, you know, the more that we can take the pitcher out of the framing and know exactly what the catcher did and exactly what the pitcher did, the more we can know what the true impact of framing is uh, and the more we can know how, how much to be worried about the, the Atlanta staff. Agreed on all points. Would you, if you were to put a dollar value, 
the, with those guys behind the plate, would you discount projections for the Atlanta pitchers by a dollar, two dollars, or not? It, it's not even. It's a non-factor for you. I mean, <clears throat> it'd probably be less than a dollar, but maybe you know, maybe you can round up. I think there is something to it. I think that um, a lot of those guys, like I said, a lot of those guys were in for regression in terms of walk rates anyway. So um, I think that the Braves will feel it. I think they'll feel it a little bit. I mean, McCann was a good, good framer. And Gaddis, even though people think that he might be okay, um, he's he's just doesn't have the, the background in catching. I mean, when I talked to Lucroy about framing, he described to me the years that he spent in the Milwaukee minor league system uh, working on framing many, many years. I mean, Gallus is, was in the minor leagues for like two years. And uh, so there, he, he was telling me about, you know, turning the, the pitch machine on and, and throwing, you know, 80 mile an hour, 90 mile an hour curveballs, you know, at the plate with the pitching machine. So you'd have to block them. I mean, this is, this is the kind of stuff that you do in the minor leagues year after year. And maybe Gallus did it for one year, but uh, he hasn't been through the gauntlet really. So as much as people like to say that they think he passes the eye test, I, I think that the, the the sort of hidden problem with Gaddis is not necessarily plate discipline, maybe not so much even age, because, you know, I think that, you know, it's possible he could repeat the power even with a bad plate discipline. Uh, but I think the hidden thing might be in, on defense. Fair enough. Uh, let's wrap up the Braves with Mr. Three True Outcome, Dan Ungla. Uh Red flags with Dan Ugla, his strikeout rate has gotten worse each of the past four seasons. Uh, he's still walking at a very strong rate, uh, but if he's not hitting a home run, which he hit 22 of last year, he is pretty much walking or striking out. His batting average was an anemic 179. Uh, that, that's Adam Dunn territory uh, in Adam Dunn's worst year. And, and as his contact rate has gotten worse, so has his batting average, 287, 233, 220, down to 179. But he's being paid quite a bit of money. How do you see the situation second base working out in Atlanta? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think that uh, there's going to be some helium in, in Tommy LaStella, um, who's a sort of refined, um, you know, college uh, second baseman that doesn't have much power or uh, speed. Uh, but, uh, you know, has a, a good walk rate and a good contact rate. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of helium behind him because people are really upset with, with Ugla. But the problem is that, um, you know, Lestella has only had 323 plate appearances at AA. Um, and I don't think that they're going to be comfortable handing him the, the, the job right away, especially since Dan Ugla is still on the roster. And I don't really see a match for them in terms of trading Dan Ugla away. So I think it'll be Dan Ugla... And maybe he gives up the job if he does what he did last year again. Uh, maybe he gives it up earlier. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's decided in April um, or May. But uh, I don't see someone coming out of here with, you know, 550 plate appearances and a lot of fantasy value. Yeah, it, this is one of the guys I don't like to say I'd like to run away from guys, but this is the guy I don't want to touch. Uh, he went in the 28th round of the FSTA. There's just too many. When you see a guy in a four-year statistical decline like this, even a bump is still going to make him the guy that you hated two years ago. Uh, and that's just where I see him. Uh, and 
Atlanta's still paying him a lot of money. It's not to say they can't just decide to DFA him if he continues to look like garbage. But the fact they wouldn't even let him off the bench towards the end of the last season, I think, speaks volumes. Yeah, and, and you mentioned this before the show. Um, oh, Ugla didn't get picked in my uh, in my industry mock at all, and we went uh, 360 deep. <clears throat> but um, you know, uh, you mentioned this in the pregame show. Lestel is not even on the forty man, so in order for them to uh, to really give Lestel the job, they may have to actually DFA Ugla. I mean, they may really have to make that decision because you're not going to keep Ugla around for defense. Precisely, um, he, he's a butcher. So, if you you want to keep him around as backup first baseman, you have Domit. So, I don't really uh, I don't really see Ugla's role if it's not starting second baseman for the Braves. And I think that's probably part of why he hasn't you know garnered any trade interest. Even they couldn't even get the Yankees interested. So, um, I feel like uh, there's too much risk there. There's the, the, with an obvious guy behind him. If there was no obvious guy behind him, and they and you were like, oh, if he played third base, for example, instead of Chris Johnson, and it was Dan Ugly, and you and, and you looked at what they had behind him, you were like, well, I don't think they really want to go to those guys. You would give Ugly a better shot. Mm-hmm. But I think that they. They're excited about Lestella, and even if they don't give him the job April 1st, you know, at the end of April, if, if Ugla's hitting 180 and uh, has three homers, I, I I don't think they'll stick with him. Agreed. Uh, so <clears throat> let's jump over to Milwaukee, and obviously the big pressing issue in Milwaukee is going to be Ryan Braun. Ryan Braun was taken ninth by Ray Flowers in the FSTA draft. He was taken 15th in my industry mock draft by Derek Van Riper. Steamer projections have him hitting 293 with 25 bombs and 16 steals. That's obviously a big step down from Ryan Braun's numbers in 2012. Uh, but better on pace number. Actually, it's pretty much on pace where he was in 2013 before his suspension. Two questions to you. One, are you still willing to draft Ryan Braun in the first round? And secondly, how comfortable are you with those steamer projections? Uh, well, I tried to do uh, a piece on on sort of Ryan Braun arbitrage right after um, the news came down. And uh, just as an aside, it was kind of funny. I, I, I learned about uh, the Ryan Braun suspension while I was standing in the dugout um, for the White Sox in Chicago. And uh, Adam Dunn learned about it right next to me. And as Adam Dunn walked away, he goes, he gone. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, um, I love that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I tried to, because uh, I'm agnostic. Uh, the only thing that I care about steroids is that they, they screw up our projections. And so I, I thought, you know, let's, let's, let's do a worst case scenario situation. Let's look at the research that's out there about steroids. If you look at, at, at steroid research that, that looks at outcomes uh, for players that have been, that have been um, nabbed, the, the, the research suggests that, there's, that steroids don't do that much for your, your performance. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of problems with that. First, um, we don't know when they, if they stopped. So we, we don't know the steroid people that got nabbed, maybe they just kept going with different steroids afterwards. Right. Um, and that's a problem for all of this. The second thing is, um, those players were getting older, so you'd really have to do an aging component to the research. Good point. Uh, and maybe they did, they aged less than other people. You know, maybe they aged less than they should. And even if their numbers were a little bit worse, they actually were better because they didn't age. So 
that there's some stuff that's a little bit of problematic with that. And also the samples are pretty small because even though they've been trying to get all these people in trouble, you know, the, the number isn't very big. Right. Uh, so I went with a different approach where I tried to look at, um, at, uh, the physics of it. And, you know, there's, there's some research out there about physics where they're like, okay, if you put this much body mass on your bat, your batted, your bat speed goes up this much. And if your bat speed goes up this much, your batted ball speed goes up this much. So, um, I tried to use that sort of analysis, and it looks like even that sort of analysis can't agree. And the the difference could be anywhere between thirty and seventy percent reduction in home runs and balls in play. So, with it, with that, with the caveat that we don't know that Ryan Braun's going to quit, uh, if he does quit steroids, he could hit anywhere uh, from twenty eight to eighteen homers next year. That works. Uh, <laughs> based on right. So, I, I guess what I would say is. I don't think you're going to see 40 again. Um, Will we see 30? I, I'm betting under on 30. Um, Oliver has 28. I'm betting under on that. Uh, my personal projection also, you know, that uh, this sort of stuff helps with uh, contact rate um, and other types of things too. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing a reduction across the board. My personal projection, and, and also he, he immediately stopped stealing bases uh, last year. Yes. Uh, and, and he got caught more than he than he than he um, took, and he didn't take a lot of attempts. So, uh, my personal projection for him is something like 285, uh, 25 homers, and like twelve stolen bases. Here's what puzzling. What I always when I look at on you know, the Fangraphs player page, the first thing I do is I look at strikeout rate for hitters, and he has a he's got a pretty much a, a wave going on. He went from twenty three to twenty to seventeen to fifteen to fourteen point eight in 2011 then went up to 18.9 so he had a four percent four percentage point jump from 2011 to 2012 then was 22 one last year so almost another four percentage point jump the walk rate's been he's, he's actually gaining more walks each of the last seven seasons he's had more his walk rate has improved but his strikeout rate got better got better then it's on this this worsening trend uh and despite all of the issues last year he didn't hit for the home runs we wanted didn't run for the steals had the second highest BABIP of his career. So he's still making hard contact, just not the kind of contact we wanted. Um, so I, I, I'm i more in line with the steamer projections. I'm comfortable with the 25 home runs, the 293. I, I think that's a, a, a tenable line. I just don't know if he's going to hit 30 home runs. If he does, it's going to require some home run to fly ball help. Uh, but I'm concerned about that strikeout rate. That's That needs to turn around. I don't like these three-year s- slides like that. Yeah, and and it does uh, make sense with uh, past uh, with our our idea of what what happens with strikeout rate. I mean, he's thirty, you know, it's time for his strikeout rate to start getting worse. So, um, you know, walk rate I think does peak a little bit later. Uh, it's a learned, it's kind of a learned skill, uh, and and less than a, less than a tool. Um, but you know, what's interesting to me is that even with that reduced, uh, projection, which I think is conservative, my, my, uh, number and I, and in my defense, I would say that a 280, 285 batting average in terms of projection is actually a, a positive, um, batting average. It's a, it's a helpful batting average and it's, it's hard to hit that these days. The, the average batting average in, in baseball is down to 250. Um, <clears throat> so, so, uh, even with that reduced, uh, projection, I think it sounds a lot like Adam Jones. I mean, 280, 285, 25 homers, 10 stolen bases. That's Adam Jones. Um, in my draft, uh, industry draft, Adam Jones went nine uh, in the first round, ninth, and Ryan Brown went tenth. 
I mean, if that's what the end of the first round looks like, then Ryan Braun's a first rounder for me, you know? Yeah, and I mentioned in my two that he went he went nine and one and fifteen in the other. Adam Jones flip. Adam Jones went nine and the one Braun went fifteen, and he went fifteenth in the one Braun went ninth. Yeah, so I mean, it, I think that a, if a conservative projection, when you're just really trying to rein yourself in, has him on the level of Adam Jones, you know, maybe you take him ahead of Adam Jones just because we know that there's. We know that Braun can do more than that, you know, you know, and we don't know that he's going to stop doing steroids. So uh, I think that the end of the first round is a really interesting place for him. Um, you know, the, the end of the first round has other people that could be bust. I mean, Adam Jones himself um, has some uh, strikeout issues. He's getting older. There's, there's a chance he hits 275 this he year. He chases. He chases. He's not a good – he's not a good hitter. I mean, he's not a good – hitter in terms of play discipline. So there's there's some chance that Chris Davis is is near that end of the first round. There's a chance for him. I mean, there's a big pretty big bust rate on Chris Davis just considering that he he has a profile of a 270 hitter and before last year he was more of a 30 35 home run hitter. So, you know, there's there's a lot of hit or miss. There's Troy Tulowitzki's at the end of the first round. You know, Ryan Braun fits right in there. You know, Troy Tulowitzki the, the issue is health, but you know, there there's a a lot of variability, and Hanley Ramirez was in my first round in my draft in my in my uh, industry draft. So those guys are all it's a take your pick, really. Um, I think you know Cano actually fell into that group. I would take Cano above them just because uh, he's. I think he's more solid than a Hanley Ramirez, Chris Davis, Ryan Braun type. But once you get past Cano, Hanley, Chris Davis, Ryan Braun, uh, take the guy you like. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, on on those on those points, especially some of the guys towards the back. Uh, could be Kershaw. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd take I'd take uh, I've, I've taken Kershaw as high as sixth in my draft. I took him sixth overall. Uh, yeah. I I love the guy, and I think it, especially this year when we're looking at, at the industry starting to say, you know what, maybe it is time we start giving starting pitching a little more of a, a bump in things. I, I like that. Um, you mentioned Chris Davis. Let's speak about the Chris Davis with a K. Who actually, uh, you know, ended up with enjoying the playing time that Ryan Braun gave up when he was suspended and making the most of it. I mean, Chris Davis ended up with a huge with a huge run there in the fifty six games that he played for Milwaukee. Hit two seventy nine, drove in twenty seven, scored twenty seven, hit eleven bombs, and this is in one hundred and fifty three plate appearances. Legitimate, yeah. or where do you view Chris Davis? I, I like him, you know. Um... One thing that stands out is that uh, he had power off of uh, fastballs and secondary stuff. He had uh, homers off changeup, homers off curveballs, homers off cutters. Um, you know, not you know, his the slider wasn't necessarily his best pitch, but you know, you do want to have a guy with great bat speed. So you know, it's good news maybe that he wasn't a slider speed bat guy. Um, the real big difference, uh, the real the real big problem with him is that. Coming up, um, there was a worry that he was uh, be the wrong side platoon guy because he's a righty and he he, he likes uh, hitting against lefties more. And a lot of his power uh, came against lefties. But um, I don't think that the uh, he's necessarily going to be relegated to that. And um, I would take the over on some of his projections, at least in terms of batting average um, and uh, and power, maybe even concerned with that. I have with him. The 11 home runs and 153 plate appearances, that's a 29% home run to fly ball ratio that's driving that. 
that's going to be tough to maintain. You go back to look at his minor league numbers. I'm looking at minor league central to see what his ratios were. Um, and they were much lower than that for the most part. So that's where my issues. You mentioned that most of his power does come from the left side. He His home runs were – he had six against lefties, five against righties. Had issues making contact against lefties. That's where a problem, which is kind of odd for a guy that hits right-handed, but he had more issues with contact against those guys um, and had a much lower walk rate. He was uh, rather you know, unselective. Two walks and 14 strikeouts and 50 plate appearances against lefties. And nine walks in 20 Ks and 103 against righty. So uh, not a complete body of work. I think I'm looking at his – he got drafted in the end of the 23rd round. He went just ahead of Michael Morris, and I'm I'm fine with that. He went just after Corey Hart, and I'm still fine with that because Corey Hart's coming off a lost season uh, along those lines. But I think Chris Davis, I'm not sure he can hit 20 home runs, but I'm not willing to say absolutely no way. I'm just pessimistic that he could be a 20 home run hitter this year. No, I, so I'm definitely more positive, positive than you. I mean, one of the things is when you're looking at these splits, he he's not starting with a uh, with a, a large split in the first place, um, and uh, his split against righties is much closer to being predictive in terms of strikeout rate. Um, I, I saw that he was uh, had an average walk rate and an average strikeout rate against righties, um, and uh, you know none of his power numbers are predictive in the in the small sample we got. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look at a guy who was supposed to be bad against righties having an average walk rate and an average strikeout rate against righties. So I like that because um, I think that he's got uh, – I think overall he's got a power resume uh, coming up in the minors. Um, so I, I actually – I'm taking the over on the steamer. Um, I mean, and just in terms of playing time, I think the Brewers uh, traded away, um, you know, Ioki. And uh, Davis has a role. I think he has a, he's got 600 plate appearances coming to him, and uh, something like a 260 average and 22 homers or so. So I, I'm I'm happy with him. I probably overdrafted him in my in my mock. I actually got him in my mock, and I got him at um, 165. That's too high. Um, but um, you know, if you're talking 13th, 14th round, he's starting to he's he's a good pick, I think, especially in five outfielder leagues. Yeah, but looking at his minor league numbers. If you were look at his minor league numbers against lefties, he actually hit uh, he hit eleven of his forty four home runs over the last couple of years in the minor league level against lefties. So he showed more power against right, with righties down there in the minor leagues, and his numbers don't back up what we saw in the major league. I think you know it's a sink or swim, and he swam. So when you look at eighteen percent strike rate, sixteen percent walk rate against lefties, so he did show the selectivity that he didn't demonstrate early on in in this major league career. So we'll see how it plays out, but there's definitely a lot of intrigue there. And obviously Milwaukee believes in him because they did move uh, Aoki, who was a leadoff hitter, a guy that could get on base and, and, and do that. And they said, you know what, forget it. We need this guy. And obviously with, since they didn't, they didn't get Corey Hart back as they'd hoped they would. There's a lot being put on Chris Davis this year. Uh, Carlos Gomez, the guy to his, uh, to his left in the outfield. Uh, a couple of mock drafts ago, I took Carlos Gomez fifth overall. Because mock drafts bore me for the most part, and I like to have fun with them. And uh, I took Carlos Gomez to generate at fifth overall to generate some discussion. And looking at his overall 2013 numbers, he ended up being the ninth most valuable fantasy player last year. Made a lot of strides last year. Where do you view uh, Carlos Gomez for 2014? I just just don't think there's uh, much projection left. Um, I mean, he's turning 28. Mm Mm-hmm. 
which seems crazy because he's been around forever. But um, he, was, he was in Paloterra. If you go back and watch that movie, he's in Paloterra as a 16-year-old in the Mets camp. Really? I yes. just watched that. Go, go back and watch that. it again because I watched it on Netflix. And Carlos Gomez, he's, there, he, there's a scene in there where they're talking about Carlos Gomez. He's, he's either 16 or 18, but he is in that movie. Because I remember going, holy crap, there's Carlos Gomez. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I just I think what will happen is that uh, we'll look back and, and that'll be his peak year. Not that um, he's terrible or anything. I, I think that uh, you'll just see some regression mostly in batting average. Um, and there's some split stuff going on there for him, too. He's He had one of his best years in terms of splits last year, and in the past his splits have been more pronounced. So, uh, And he's a righty, too. So, you know, if, if things start to go south in terms of splits, that's how – you know, he wasn't a full-time player for, for for those years, and that's how Niger Morgan had a job. Yes. Um, but uh, I think there's there's some and, – and since he doesn't uh, give a walk rate, there's uh, there's also the chance that he falls out of the top of the lineup and his runs in RBI totals, um, you know, have some problem there. So uh, I do like him, but I, I wouldn't take him in the first round. Gotcha. So, again, I took Gomez with the fifth overall pick in that draft and looking at where he went last night in the uh, the FSTA, Gomez went in the second round, fourth pick overall. So that was a 19th overall pick. He went behind Giancarlo Stanton and Alex Rios. I think at 19, obviously, I think he's a bargain because I took him at five. I honestly don't have a problem with taking him in a 15-team mixed league and taking him in the first round. Uh, while there may not be any more growth in his line, I think what he did last year is sustainable as far as his counting categories go. Obviously, it's a little tough to look at if, when you look at a low walk rate and almost a 4-to-1 walk-to-strikeout ratio. Can he can he repeat the high BABIP after two seasons of being below 300 and then hitting 344 BABIP? But counting categories, I think he can hit 25-plus home runs. I think he could repeat the 40 steals because he stole 37 in 2012, stole 40 last year. And as you mentioned, he's turning 27. So he's got a, at least another good year of stolen bases in him. So I think there's some 30-30 potential here. Um, and at 19, I think he's a bargain. To me, Carlos Gomez is a top 15 player. Cool deal. Uh, let's look at John Segura, another guy that people were, uh, you know, obviously a, a very strong first half for Segura was just hitting everything in sight and then tapered off overall. But the overall numbers are still uh, tapered off in the second half. The overall numbers are still strong. You look at his final season, uh, final numbers, 12 home runs, 44 steals and 57 attempts and hits 294 last season. Where are you at with Segura? You know, I would be more suspicious of his uh, power surge, uh, given his history, but uh, he had really good batted ball distance numbers. Um, so I don't really have a problem with him, uh, say, you know, hitting uh, uh, another eight, eight, eight or nine homers next year. Um stealing 30 35 bags uh and i and i can't imagine that he'll be very far off of uh the best shortstop uh the best fantasy shortstop in baseball so i think um you know give him you know some decent runs numbers maybe not great rbi totals and uh you're talking about him one or one a or you know probably a 20 dollars shortstop right there yeah he went uh the third pick in the third uh, – I'm sorry, the fourth pick in the third round at FSTA yesterday. I remember when we talked about 
Jose Reyes the other day, we mentioned you know where Segura was, and if you you know why take why should you be spending the money to take Jose Reyes or spending the high draft pick when when Segura is still sitting around? Segura's ADP is currently twenty eight, so being able to give him the fourth pick of the fourth round is pretty nice. He's been taken as high as sixteen in NFBC mock drafts and as low as forty three. That second half is definitely scaring some people off. A two forty one batting average, a five eighty three OPS. Uh, that's not pretty. The one home run he hit in the second half, when you look at that first half, 325, 849 OPS, and just a 12% strikeout rate. So that second half is scaring people off. It the truth's in the middle. He's not as bad as the second half. He's not as good as the first half, but I do agree with you. There's some pop in that bat. Just because he's a smallish middle infielder does not mean that you know these home runs were flukes. You look at the guy, he's built like a fire plug. He's like Kirby Puckett in that regard. And I like this guy. You look at him, he's small, but with the bat, the ball does jump off this guy's bat. Yeah, and I'm actually happy that he had that second half. I mean, if he if he just torn through the through it uh, all season, then we'd have to hear about how he's definitely the number one uh, starting shortstop and how he's worth a first-round pick and all that stuff. I think it's better that he cooled off and – Gave us a, a little bit of an idea of the risk that he that he entails, but I still I still like looking at his at his full line as opposed to his monthly splits. I mean, there's no reason to think that you know something uh, drastic changed. Here's a guy who's got a good strikeout rate, good foot speed, uh, decent power. Not doesn't have to have uh, you know mashing power in order to put drives in the ball and, and turn some infield outs into doubles and that sort of deal. So I feel like, um, you know, I like what I saw across the board. Uh, you know, maybe not walk rate for real life ball, but um, I don't think that uh, that Milwaukee team is necessarily ripe with uh, leadoff hitters um, and, and can say, oh, sorry, Segura, you don't walk enough. You can't be our leadoff hitter. I mean, it's uh, him and Gomez at the top of the lineup, even if they're bad, their walk rates are bad. Uh, Agreed. Yeah, with the Oki out of the picture, it's anybody could hit lead off for them. Yeah, I think actually that's a it's a good argument for your um, you know just to go back to Gomez for a second. It's a good argument for what you're saying that um, you know even if he has some risk when it comes to platoon splits, the the way that the, the place that Milwaukee's at right now isn't the kind of place where they're going to um, make Carlos Gomez have a platoon partner. And it's not the kind of place where they're going to push John Segura down to the seventh bat, seventh spot in the lineup. The place that the Milwaukee Brewers are at right now, I think, are, you know, these are our guys. Let's make sure they can do this for the future. Um, and, um, and let's say, make sure that they, we give them a full season, uh, even if they're struggling. Let them, let them work it out because these are controllable assets that we have. And we need to know how much we can depend on them for the future not – you know, screw around with their development in order to win three or four more games this year. Definitely agree. Let's shift over to the uh, the pitching side. And people have to be concerned about Giovanni Gallardo coming into 2014 because we're talking about a guy whose strikeout rate is in a five-year decline. 25.7, 24.9, 23.9, 7 and then a big drop off last year to 18.6. His strike after four straight seasons of striking out 200 plus batters only struck out 144 last season. And when you watched him pitch last year, clearly was not the same guy. Was at least able to work 180 innings for the fifth straight season, but this isn't what you signed up for last year. Gallardo was going 
He was, if I recall correctly, a top 80 pick last year. Last night, FSTA, Gallardo was picked in the 20th round. Where do you sit with Gallardo? Yeah, you know, the velocity loss has been pretty stark. He's down to 90 these days. Um, and I think velocity was actually kind of important to him. Um, and uh, just looking across his line, um, he, he's kind of overperformed certain peripherals in the past. Um, and and he didn't do that this last year. And, and you know, just looking at his pitch peripherals, um, there's no – I mean, for example, he has swinging strike rates that were pretty much league average the entire time that he was striking out guys at, at, at uh, one per inning. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was always like sort of a disconnect between his per pitch numbers and his, and his overall numbers. So maybe it's folly for me to now say, well, none of his pitches get average, uh, got average whiff rates last year. And he went from using the four seam more to using the sinker a little bit. I mean, he didn't use the sinker more than the four seam, but he, he shifted some of his usage over to the two seamer. The two seamer is not very good. Um, so, you know, all of his pitches have really high ball rates. Uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, a brain buster to say he's never had good command. Um, so it's just a guy that I think when his velocity was at its peak, it worked. Mm-hmm. And when the velocity is not at its peak, I think it's not going to work. Yeah, that that's definitely an issue. Plus, mechanically, he's not sound mechanically. You watch those... Oh, my kids are home. <laughs> uh, so you look at mechanically with him, There's his delivery has a lot of tilt to it. So there's some issue with him, and that I think that's worked against him, that delivery repeating it, and it's not a, it's not a pristine delivery. Going at it over and over and over again, that's one of the issues uh, that he's run into. So I don't like him. Uh, one of the guys I do like is Willie Peralta, a guy that has made some nice strides. He has the same kind of delivery. It seems like all those Milwaukee guys do, but – he really made some strides last uh, season in the second half. Uh, Paul Spore wrote about it over at his site, uh, Paint the Black, and talked about how Peralta really got on top of that slider last year and really spiked his whiff rate in the second half and made some nice strides. One of our listeners asked us to cover Peralta, and that's why we're bringing him up. Where are you sitting with Peralta? Yeah, the, the interesting thing about Peralta, I think if I'm getting it right, um, he's the guy who kind of has two sliders. Yes, yeah, and um, and he, you know, I think that is part of uh, the, the, the maybe that he doesn't command them very well. Um, so in the past, that's meant, um, you know, some homer issues. Uh, I think that's what he, he kind of had some homer issues in the early uh, half of, of last year. And also the inability to sort of show the same strikeout rates they showed in the minors um, in the major leagues. But, you know, if it's really it's really helpful to look at at uh like i say i hate to be one note but I, it's really important to look at per pitch data uh and look at stuff um you know especially with guys that are younger and his slider is an excellent pitch uh his two seamer gets uh 15% uh when it's not 50, it's 15 out of 25 so he gets uh you know 60% ground balls with the with the sinker um, and it's all going 95 miles an hour. So he's got a lot of velocity and yeah, maybe the change isn't great. Um, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't get ground balls at all and it doesn't get average whips, but you know, he has two sliders. He has a representative change. And I think the two sliders might help him with, um, with platoon splits. When I talk to relievers, um, that 
didn't display platoon splits were fastball slider guys. They all said, oh, yeah, I have two sliders. I have a slow slider and I have a fast slider. Right. Use the, I use the slow slider almost like a curve, and I use that more against lefties. So I think he probably, you know, a couple of – on Brooks Baseball, a couple of pitches showed up as a curve. That's probably the slow slider at its slowest. And um, he has the arsenal that, uh, that he needs in order to, to uh, succeed. You know, I just uh, – I wish he had better sort of innate command. And, um, that, that worries me a little bit, um, you know, just in terms of, uh, getting two on the bandwagon. Yeah. That, the, the command, that's really a, he's one of these guys that falls off the rubber. So mechanically, like I said, it's not pretty to watch him mechanically. He, he has a lot of tilt to him. He's got a very high arm angle and falls off when he pitches. So I don't think that's ever going to improve, but we look at the, when I look at his numbers, the first two months of the season last year, 311 batting average against 375 OBP 424 slug strikeout rate for a guy with his stuff was only striking out 13% of the guys he was facing with a 342 Babbitt. Then, you know, hit June and 240 the rest of the season, 364 slug against 18% strikeout rate. So that's better. And then 275 Babbitt. So I thought he made some really nice strides, uh, got some more swings and misses, found the strike zone a, a little more frequently in the second half. I think the things you talked about and such, that's going to limit his upside. But I think there's a lot of profit here, especially when I see him going in the 26th round of the FSTA draft behind a guy like Martin Perez. I mean, a lot of people like Martin Perez, but the strikeouts aren't going to be there. This guy's not going to turn into a guy that has his strikeouts per nine is right at just about six. That's not going to suddenly grow to seven and a half. Whereas Peralta, it possibly could. James Paxton was drafted ahead of, Peralta and James Paxton. Some people think he's just a reliever. Brett Oberholzer don't even know what his role is going to be yet. He's getting drafted ahead of Willie Peralta. So uh, I think there's a lot of profit like Chris Johnson. I think people may be missing the boat here in Peralta a little bit and overlook what he did in the second half of the season. Yeah. Just remember not to, not to uh, take him too high. The, uh, his changeup has a 10% ground ball rate. Um, and uh, when he threw the changeup against righties, uh, it was a homer 5% of the time. Yeah. So uh, I think that um, I think that there's a there's a, something to be worried about there. The changeup needs to be better unless he can really refine. The, see, I think, you know, when you look at Masterson, Justin Masterson is the kind of guy that has the wrong arsenal for platoon splits. He's yes. a sinker and a slider. They're all bad for platoon splits. But when he does have good years, it's when he's commanding the ball. And um, he, those are the best years of his walk rate. And basically what he does as lefties is just not walk them and not put the ball in a place where they'll hit a home run and, and, and just try to get through that bat, really. Um, Peralta has the weapons to do that, especially since he has two sliders. Um, the, the question is if he has the command to do that. Agreed. He's definitely somebody that intrigues me. Um, so does his teammate Marco Estrada. Marco Estrada is somebody else that somebody else is to do. If you you know close your mind and think of Estrada, you're thinking of a guy, okay, he can get some strikeouts, but he has a problem with the home runs. And certainly, he got 19 home runs last year. But 14 of those came in the first half of the season. And he, like Peralta, made some nice strides. His pre-All-Star break strikeout rate was 21%. It was 26% after the All-Star break. Opponent's batting average went from 275 to 165. OPS 817 to 467. 
simply because he kept the ball in the yard. He only gave up five home runs after the All-Star break uh, in 213 plate appearances. Estrada, that's really what's held him back in the past, has been that home run rate. I don't think that's ever going to go away because he's a, a guy that works up in the zone. He's not a ground ball type of guy. He can elevate his pitches, and when the things get elevated, they get hit hard with him. But he, he was taken in the 19th round uh, right behind Justin Masterson. That was the pitcher that was taken ahead of him in FSTA. Do you share my uh, excitement, if you will, about Estrada for 2014? Yeah, and I, and I like him better than uh, Peralta. Um, and, you know, you can look at the, the overall and see the, the better whiff rate. Um, and it, it is interesting also that because their fastballs are so different. Estrada um, has the 90-mile-an-hour uh, uh, fastball. It's probably led to some of his homer issues, too. If he's trying to throw a 90-mile-an-hour meatball up in the zone, that's going to turn into a homer, especially in Milwaukee. But the thing that I like about Estrada is that he has weapons for both hands, and his change is plus-plus. I mean, his change is a 25% whiff rate. That's up there with Hamels. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's got a good ground ball rate. The curve, he uses for ground balls. It's got a 60% ground ball rate. Um, and he uh, so he uses the change more against uh, lefties, um, and it's excellent. And he uses the, the curve a little bit. He uses it about 50-50 against righties. But, you know, it gets good ground balls. He's got he's got the weapons he needs, and you know I kind of trust his his command a lot more. So I know it's not quite you know the command and finesse guy. It's you know they have a teammate Michael Fires who's like oh. he's got command or finesse because he's he's got like an 87 mile an hour fastball. So Estrada is a little bit better off with a 90 mile an hour fastball. Uh, that's a representative fastball. He has good command. Um, and he has all the arsenal. He has all the weapons he needs to get people out. So I think he can survive with a with a home run rate over one for for nine innings, especially since he won't walk a lot of guys. And uh, I like his changeup a lot. Yeah, the home run nine, uh, fourteen of his nineteen home runs came off the fastball last year. So agreed, the fastball is the issue. And as long as he can get and, and get ahead and stay ahead in the count. That's going to allow him to use those other weapons so he doesn't have to fall back on that fastball. Uh, but he's another guy. I like those second-half improvements. I agree with you. I do like Estrada more than Peralta. Both intrigue me, though. If I'm in an NL league, it wouldn't surprise me if I end up with both those guys on my roster after the draft just because those are the kind of guys I like to take my chances on later on in the uh, later on in the drafts just because of the – particularly with Estrada, the strikeout upside has always intrigued me. Yeah. All right, that wraps up our preview for Atlanta and Milwaukee. Any final thoughts for people? No, I, uh, I, uh, we're we're trying to be, uh, you know, we're trying to be in depth, and that's you know, some people really want the in depth, and then we also um, don't want to run too long. Um, so I would, I would be interested in your feedback about the length um, and the and how in depth we go. Um, that's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that that would be interesting for in terms of feedback, but um, I'm enjoying talking to you, Coletti, and uh, or Colette, sorry, Jesus Christ, <laughs> and uh, and I hope that you guys are enjoying listening to us talk to each other. Yeah, definitely agree on all those points. Oh yeah, also tonight you and I are up against each other in one award, right? That's right. <laughs> there we can have, be only one. We have a 66 percent chance of bringing an award home. How's that? <laughs> it's it's pretty cool because. You know, we just we hired you uh, here at Fangraphs, and um, so that it's fun to have both of us under that banner on, on some uh, some extent. 
And, um, and then I, uh, you know, Rich is a, is a good friend. So, um, I'm, re- I'm actually going to be happy, uh, no matter who wins. I, I do want to win. Obviously I, I want to beat you guys, but, um, uh, I'm happy that the, the three of us are in this together. Yeah, it was when it, when it came out. I I forgot Derek had, had submitted those, and then I see I'm like, oh, I I was just sitting down to record a podcast with Paul. Actually, he goes, hey, congrats on the uh, the nominee. I'm like, huh? He goes, oh, you were nominated for writer of the year and column of the year. And I'm like, who am I up against? He's like, oh, you know. And Rich, I'm like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so next time we'll get to, one of us will get to congratulate the other one, hopefully, um, or we'll both get to say congratulations to Richie. Uh, either way, so uh, next time it's Cubs and Cardinals, which should be recording on Tuesday the twenty first. So if you do have any quite any players you'd like us to hit, make sure you leave comments there for us, and we'll get on that. Thanks for listening.